Well, it is truly a joy to be with you, the people of God this morning, and to open God's holy word together. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles on the, in the chair pocket in front of you, it's found on page 983, Acts chapter 16. And we are going to be continuing our series through the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts 16 all the way through Acts 17 verse 15. So as you're turning there, I want to read a news report to you. It's entitled, Man, age 91, dies waiting for will of God. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby says. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was, that was primary to him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he seemed to not capitalize on his talents. Walter had a number of skills he never got around to using, said longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with wood and had a storyteller side to him too. I always told him, take a risk. Try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. Well, if you haven't realized it already, this is one of those fake news stories, satire that's funny because it could almost be true. It is written by Lark News to poke fun at how many of us think about God's will for our lives. Like Walter, some of us, out of a good and genuine desire to please God, we agonize over the choices in our lives, desperately wanting to make the right choice and terrified of making the wrong choice. We long for God to reveal the future to us so that we know what he wants us to do and we can have confidence that everything's going to go well for us and that we won't take a misstep that will end up in some difficult or hard situation. However, the problem with this understanding of God's will is that it leads to passivity and inaction. Like Walter, we can run the risk of wasting our lives away. Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent little book, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, writes this, Obsessing over the future is not how God wants us to live, because showing us the future is not God's way. His way is to speak in the scriptures and transform us by the renewing of our minds. His way is not a crystal ball. His way is wisdom. We should stop looking for God to reveal the future to us and remove all risk from our lives. We should start looking to God, his character, and his promises, and thereby have confidence to take risks for his name's sake. I love that last bit. We should have confidence to take risks for his name's sake. Why? Because as Christians, we believe that God is in control of our lives, and so we don't have to worry about our futures. 
Instead, we can focus on actively living for him in the present, trusting him to guide and direct our lives as he sees fit. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul lived his life. As we're going to see in our passage this morning, Paul did not sit around agonizing over what he should do with his life, constantly second-guessing every decision. Paul was not passively waiting for the Lord to tell him what city to go to next. No, Paul was active. Paul was on the move. He was using wisdom and common sense to make plans. He was being strategic and intentional. He knew he served at the pleasure of, of his good and wise Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he trusted Jesus to guide and direct his life. Paul believed that wherever the Lord guided him, that's where the Lord wanted him to minister. And so Paul actively pursued opportunities to speak God's word wherever and to whomever the Lord put in his path. You see, Paul believed that it was easier to steer a moving car than a parked car. So Paul stayed actively engaged in ministry, trusting that Jesus was more than able to guide and direct him wherever he wanted him to go. So here's the big idea for our passage this morning. Jesus spreads his saving message to the world by sovereignly guiding his people as they actively pursue opportunities to speak his word. So let's get into our text and see how this plays itself out in the life of Paul and his companions. So let's look back at the end of chapter 15, verse 36, to kind of get the context for this second missionary journey that we're going to be looking at today. So chapter 15, verse 36. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, this is a great idea. It's been a while since they've seen these folks and they want to just check in and see how they are doing. So here we see Paul actively pursuing opportunities to minister to others. Paul isn't sitting around waiting for God to magically tell him to go visit these believers. He's not making deals with God like, okay, God, if you really want me to go visit these brothers and sisters again, have a sea captain knock on my door and invite me to travel with him. No, Paul realizes Hey, it's been a while since I've shared the word of God with these folks and I care about them. I want to go see how they're doing. So he goes. And this clearly isn't a moral decision, right? There's no commandment that says, thou shall not visit your friends. And as we see in verse 40, his decision is supported by his brothers and sisters in Christ. So since it isn't a sinful decision and since it seems like a wise and good thing to do, Paul decides to make the trip. But there's a little bit of a hiccup, right? Look at verse 37. We saw this last week. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was also called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then when we get into chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, we see that uh, Paul picks up another traveling companion named Timothy. So at this point, things are going great in his journey. Verse 5 says, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul's plan is working. Things are going well. 
But then notice what happens next. Look with me at verse 6 and following. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So remember our big idea for our passage this morning. Jesus spreads his saving message to the world by sovereignly guiding his people as they actively pursue opportunities to speak his word. So here we see this in action. Paul is actively looking for opportunities to preach the gospel. He's not sitting around twiddling his thumbs. He's on the go. He's making plans. However, it's clear, as Michael Lawrence says, that Paul is not the team leader. Jesus is. It is ultimately Jesus' missions, not Paul's, that will take place. Jesus is the one sovereignly guiding and directing Paul and his friends as they're actively seeking to serve him. So though we don't know how the Holy Spirit did it, somehow or another, the Holy Spirit made it clear to Paul that Asia and Bithynia were off limits. As team leader, Jesus had made the decision that it's time for Europe to hear the good news about him. So after stopping them from going into Asia and Bithynia, Jesus gives Paul a vision of a Macedonian man pleading with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, at first, this might seem like a direct contradiction to everything I've been saying so far about how God guides our lives. Here in this text, Jesus clearly gives Paul a vision for what he should do next. So does this mean that we should expect God to give us visions about what he wants us to do next. Well, I don't think so. Nowhere in scripture are we told to expect visions from God to tell us what to do. Now, this doesn't mean that God can't give visions or dreams. It just means that we shouldn't be dependent on them before we make a decision or take action. Even in the book of Acts, visions are pretty rare, and interestingly, they are never sought out. Paul isn't sitting around waiting for a vision before he does ministry. No, Paul's out doing ministry and Jesus gives him a vision to direct him. Visions are just one of the many ways that Jesus guides and directs his people. But most of the time, including in the rest of our passage today, Jesus guides his people through their use of wisdom and common sense. But before I move on, I want to say a few more things about visions. First, I think it's very important for us to remember and to note that there is no vision or dream or anything else from God that will ever come to you that will contradict Scripture. Scripture, not dreams or visions or feelings, is our final and ultimate authority. So don't ever take a dream or a feeling that you have and place it above the Bible. That is not how we should do this. Just because you have a dream doesn't mean it's from God. Test everything with the word of God. 
God has made his will for our lives clear in his word and he will never tell you to do something that goes against what he has clearly taught in his word. And secondly, it's also important to remember that just because you dream it and just because it doesn't contradict a clear teaching of scripture doesn't necessarily mean it comes from God. So let's be done saying things like this. God told me to share this with you. Or even worse, God told me that he wants you to do such and such. Now, I know that most of the time, statements like these are well-meaning, right? We don't really think that what we're saying should carry the same weight and authority as Scripture. But even at their best, even at their best, statements like these are unhelpful. And at their worst, they can be spiritually abusive and manipulative. After all, who would dare disagree with God? In tacking God onto what we are saying, we are raising our thoughts and our decisions to a level of authority that they do not have. When we say things like this, we are communicating that what we think or feel or the decision that we have made is above critique. Think about it. If someone tells you, I've been praying about it and God's told me to take this promotion, they have completely cut off the opportunity to hear a different opinion. They have convinced themselves that that decision is from the Lord. And for you to challenge that decision is to challenge God himself. If God told you to take the promotion, then who am I to question that? Who am I to lovingly point out that it may not be the wisest decision because your marriage is struggling and the promotion will require extra travel and time away from home? Who am I to point out the wisdom of taking a promotion that will move you to an area where there isn't a solid local church to be involved in? Who am I to point these things out? It would be far better and more accurate to say things like this. I think the Lord is leading me this way. What do you think? Or I've been praying and asking the Lord for wisdom about this, and here's what I'm thinking. Does this seem wise to you? Statements like these do not claim God-like authority on issues that Scripture does not directly address. And one other thing. Men, never tell a woman, God told me to marry you. <laughs> and women, run from a guy that tells you that. God is not a trump card to be played. We must not use God's name to add weight to what we say and think. Well, if you have more questions about this, I would be happy to talk with you after the service. But let's pick up our story again at verse 11. So remember, our big idea is that Jesus spreads his saving message to the world by sovereignly guiding his people as they actively pursue opportunities to speak his word. So look with me at verses 11 through 15. We'll see Paul on the move. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. Paul wants to see the gospel penetrate deeply into Macedonia, so he heads straight for one of its leading cities. 
Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house and she persuaded us. Okay, so after scoping out the city, Paul realized that there isn't a synagogue. There's not a Jewish place of worship in this city, which means that those who do worship God would probably be gathered outside the city by the river. So on the Sabbath, they go looking for where people would be gathering, and they find a group of women. Though some Jewish men would have had nothing to do with a group of women, especially Gentile women, Paul and his companions walk straight up to them and begin talking with them. And this is because they have come to learn Jesus' heart for women. All throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus loving and caring for women. He never, ever mistreated them or looked down on them. Instead, Jesus over and over again is pursuing them with love and compassion. And that's because Jesus desires all people, male and female, Jew or Gentile, slave and free, rich or poor, all people to know his saving mercy. And so Paul and his friends engage these women in conversation about Jesus there along the riverbank. And it's important for us to realize that it was no accident that Paul and his friends were there that day along the riverbank. They had actively sought out this opportunity to share Jesus Christ. But just as importantly, we see that the Lord Jesus, in love for Lydia and her family, had guided them to that riverbank that day and was actively at work in Lydia's heart. Luke tells us in verse 14 that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to what Paul was saying. In remarkable grace and mercy, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to Lydia through the message Paul shared. So what we see here is that Paul preached, Jesus saved, and Lydia was converted. And isn't that always how it works? By God's grace, we have the privilege and joy of speaking about Jesus to others. But we are not able to save anyone Jesus is the Savior. We are his witnesses sent out into the world with his saving message of forgiveness of sins and peace with God. But he alone is the Savior. He alone is powerful enough to open hearts to believe in him. And that's exactly what he did for Lydia and all those in her household. There in the river that day, Paul and his friends had the joy of baptizing and welcoming Lydia and her household into God's family. And then after her baptism, did you catch that? Lydia immediately insists that Paul and his friends stay with her. So here we see that the gospel is already bearing fruit in her life, having been shown such welcoming grace by the Lord Jesus she desires to extend that same welcome to her new brothers in Christ. So, so far, things have been going great in Philippi. Paul and his friends have been able to share Christ with some women. Lydia and her household have believed, and now they have a place to stay while they continue seeking opportunities to spread the good news 
about Jesus. So let's see what happens next. Look with me at verses 16 and following. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt or practice. Well, the crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the socks. So here we see Paul and Silas beginning to face opposition in their gospel ministry. The slave girl's owners didn't care that she had been freed from her evil spirit. All they cared about was their money. This girl was useless to them now, and so they strike back at Paul and Silas. Though the real reason they are upset is their greed, of course. They know better than to lead with that. That's not likely to stir the crowd up, right? So instead, what do they do? They highlight Paul and Silas's ethnic and cultural differences. They are Jews who are disturbing our city with their illegal and weird practices. And this does the trick. Soon, Paul and Silas are stripped naked, beaten severely with rods, and thrown into prison. But notice what happens next. Instead of growing discouraged and upset, Paul and Silas continued to trust that their loving and wise Savior was guiding each and every moment of their lives. They knew that there was no way that they would be in prison unless Jesus wanted them there. This was because Jesus doesn't have a plan B. Jesus's GPS for your life never says recalculating. Jesus is always sovereignly guiding his people's lives according to his perfect plan. So even though Paul and Silas didn't know what Jesus was up to yet, they knew that they could trust him to guide their lives and that his will for them was to faithfully witness for him. So look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. That is remarkable. Instead of the curses and complaints that usually echoed through the prison cells, there are prayers and hymns filling the night air. Until suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. 
When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, apparently Jesus did know what he was doing, putting them in that prison that night. He had more hearts in Philippi he wanted to open to receive his message of salvation. And Paul and Silas didn't miss their cue. Look at verse 31. They said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. No matter where Jesus guides them, they are ready to share the good news. And how did the jailer respond? Verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Again, notice how hospitality is the fruit of the gospel in this passage. The jailer who had only hours earlier jammed their feet into the stocks is now washing their wounds and opening up his home to them and feeding them. That is the saving power of Jesus at work in this man's life. This hardened jailer is now overcome with joy. He's rejoicing that he and his household have come to believe in God. Let's keep going in our story with verse 35. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, which was illegal to do. And they threw us in jail. And now are they going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now here Paul is being very strategic and wise. This isn't vindictive. This is strategic and wise because he knows that if he were just to kind of leave secretly, that everyone in the city would continue to assume that Lydia and the jailer and their households and any of the other Christians there associated with Paul are dangerous, bad people who Philip, the Philippi people should not associate with. However, by making the magistrates publicly acknowledge that they made a mistake in having him beaten and imprisoned, clears Paul and Silas's names and provides some protection to the young church there in Philippi. This is not some illegal rogue group. The magistrates messed up. This is an okay group to have existing in Philippi. And the message gets communicated. Look at verse 38. So the police report Paul's words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them And escorting them from prison, 
they urged them, please leave. (laughs) And after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and then departed. And it's likely that the letter to the Philippians went to the house church that met in Lydia's home. So remember our big idea. Jesus spreads his saving message to the world by sovereignly guiding his people, even into jail cells, as they actively pursue opportunities to speak his word. So let's see how this continues to play out in the next couple of cities that Paul visits. So look with me, chapter 17, verse 1. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So notice how active Paul is in speaking God's word. Even though the Lord is the one who sovereignly opens hearts to the gospel, Paul is making the most of every opportunity the Lord gives him. Luke describes Paul as reasoning, as explaining, as proving from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and then to rise from the dead. Christianity is not an irrational faith. It's not a blind leap into the dark. It is a reasonable faith grounded in the teaching of Scripture and the historical life of Jesus of Nazareth. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, I want to plead with you to seriously consider the Bible's teaching about Jesus. Some 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God became a man. He was born as a little Jewish boy in Bethlehem, and he grew up in Nazareth. As a man, he went around doing good and teaching people about God. And then, just like the scriptures foretold, Jesus suffered and died on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem for the sins of his people. But three days later, just as the scriptures had promised, he rose powerfully from the dead, never to die again. So this Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of Lords, and he freely now offers salvation to anyone who would believe in him. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Don't spurn his offer of salvation. Believe in him as your savior now so that you do not have to face him as your judge later. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Well, if you have more questions about Jesus, I would love the chance to talk with you about him. So please find me afterwards or you can contact me through our church's website. I would love to continue dialoguing with you about Jesus the Christ. But let's look now at how those in Thessalonica responded to Paul's message in verses four through nine. Some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. 
But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They were all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. While the crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So just like in Philippi, the gospel has a mixed response. Some people believe while others oppose. And since the opposition has gotten so intense, Paul and his friends wisely decide to move on to the next town, trusting that Jesus is guiding them. So let's look at our last section together in verses 10 through 15. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. They just don't stop, do they? Notice that wherever Paul goes, he is always actively pursuing opportunities to share Christ. He is confident that wherever he is at, the Lord has him there for a reason. And so he seeks to make the most of every opportunity Jesus gives him. Verse 11, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? Since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. So these people are great, aren't they? They serve as such a good model for us. They thoughtfully engage with what Paul and Silas are saying, and then they test it against the scriptures. And as a result of this thoughtful, intentional engagement, many of them become convinced that the Jesus Paul was preaching about is the Savior the scriptures speak about, and they put their faith in him. But verse 13 But when the Jews, all the way over in Thessalonica, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed." So what we have seen all throughout this passage is that Jesus spreads his saving message to the world by sovereignly guiding his people as they actively pursue opportunities to speak his word. So in light of that truth, I want to offer one brief application for us. As God's people, let's be actively pursuing opportunities to speak his word, trusting resting in, being confident in the fact that Jesus is sovereignly guiding us. So let's look at the first part of that application. Let's, church, be actively pursuing opportunities to speak his word. Let's get off the bench and into the game. Let's take risks for God. And let's never forget who we are. We are Jesus' witnesses, empowered by his Holy Spirit to speak his life-giving, joy-producing message to the world. So let's do it. Let's open our mouths and call people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. 
Let's reason, let's explain, let's prove from the Bible that Jesus is the crucified and risen Savior to whom all people must give an account. At times, this will mean we will face stiff opposition from the world, but that's okay. The gospel has faced opposition now for 2,000 years, but nothing has been able to stop Jesus from opening hearts to respond to him. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been saving people through his people's sharing of the gospel. So let's commit, church, to actively pursuing opportunities to speak his word. And let's do all of this trusting that Jesus is sovereignly guiding us. Nothing is happening or will happen in our lives outside of his sovereign and wise plan for us. Jesus has you in the job he has you, in the season of life you're in, and in the circle of friends that you have so that you can be a witness for him. So instead of worrying about your future, faithfully serve Christ today where he has you and let him take care of your future. He will guide and direct your life as you actively seek to serve him. Let's pray.